Sponsor CBT Nuggets is IT training for IT professionals and anyone looking to build IT skills. If you want to make fully operational your networking, cloud, security, automation, or DevOps battle station, visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. Today on Heavy Networking, a career-oriented show, we are discussing how to take those complex engineering systems that live in your brain and share them in a way that other people can understand them. And maybe that other person is a coworker or your boss, or you're doing a presentation for a customer because they have to make a buying decision. Maybe it's a presentation to the entire company because you're training them on, I, I don't know, a new VPN login procedure or something like that. Our guest today, Drew Conry-Murray. Yes, that Drew, the voice you hear every week on Tech Bytes and Network Break and guest hosting on other podcasts across the Packet Pushers podcast network. And I've known Drew for many years. He was my editor when I wrote for Network Computing and Information Week back in the day. And he was also my handler when I was delivering presentations at Interop conferences. And of course, in recent years, Drew has become a Packet Pusher, slaving away in the Packet Mines alongside me and Greg Farrow. Now, Drew, I mean, everybody knows your voice and um, and they're very familiar with you if they've li- been listening to Packet Pusher. So this may seem like a weird question, but I want people to get to know you a little better. So I'm going to start with a question I ask a lot of our guests. Who are you and what do you do? Hey, Ethan. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I am Drew. I am the content director at Packet Pushers. So that means uh, I blog for Packet Pushers. I podcast for Packet Pushers on the network break. I edit other folks who come onto the site. I do a lot of writing for our clients. Uh, and I make sure all the podcasts we produce get out the door. Yes, and uh, and so much of what you do is unheralded. It's, it's, it's it happens in the background, <laughs> which is too bad. But, uh, but I mean, it's, of- in some ways, it's like the networking field, and that if nobody notices, then it's fine. That means everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, well, if you didn't know all the things that Drew does for Packet Pushers, uh, now you do out there listening. Uh, Drew, if you were to describe yourself to a stranger, would you say that you're a writer? I mean, I ask that because you you do a lot of writing and you've even written things outside of the tech field. You've got, you've been, you're a published author in that space as well. So do you think of yourself as a writer or as something else? Um, I guess in my head I do, if I'm, when I run into somebody, I say, and you do that, what do you do? I say, I write about the tech industry. And then if their eyes don't glaze over, you know, I'll get into more specifics, but otherwise tech industry is enough for most people. So I just leave it there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. I struggle with this a little bit myself, Drew. I went, am I a writer? Am I a podcaster? I don't know. Yes. I'm just a, I don't know. I'm a creator, I guess. I'm like and if a, you tell people you're a podcaster, they're like, oh, so you live in a basement with your parents, Right. That's right. And I sell Squarespace <laughs> ads and I sell purple mattresses. Yeah, that's what I do. You got it. Got it. So Drew, again, in this effort of getting to know you a little bit better, um, you got a, a long history in this field. Talk us through some of the positions that you held prior to being content director at Packet Pushers. So I've been writing and editing in the tech space for going on 20 years or more now. Um, I started off as a copy editor you know, in charge of all the commas and periods and spellings and uh, all that uh, for a publication called Network Magazine. Uh, this was back when magazines were actually printed on paper. So oh. that's how that's how old this is. <laughs> uh, and I came in without, you know, a computer or a networking background. Um, so it was like, here's the deep end, kid, in you go. <laughs> <laughs> and in some ways it was good because there was so much to learn that I just kind of like started picking up as much as I could. That is Network Magazine asked you to do copy editing on a jargon-laden technical field that you were not trained in. Exactly. Yes. So luckily they had a style guide, which is a sort of book of, you know, 
how they capitalize things and punctuate things, but also all the acronyms. So, you know, when I first came across BGP, I'd go to the book and look that up and go, okay, that didn't tell me anything. And now I need to go to another book and see what border gateway protocol actually means. Um, <laughs> but yes, <yeah>, so <laughs> yeah, there was a lot to learn. So how did your career progress from there? One of the good things about that publication is that it was a small staff. And so pretty much everybody did a little bit of everything, which means that if a, a senior editor couldn't take a briefing with a vendor, they'd say, hey, Drew, go take this meeting. And I'll be like, I don't know what firewalls are. What do I do? And they're just, just sit and listen and ask questions. And so, again, being thrown into the deep end, I just listened and got to ask questions and lots and lots of questions and like stupid questions, like the stupidest, most basic questions. But that, again, that was good for me because I didn't know anything. And so I was just ready to take in everything. And most of the folks that I talked to were patient and actually sometimes happy to be able to sort of go into detail about what it was they did and why they were doing it. I also spent a lot of time reading uh, outside of work, both like popular press books, like um, Where Wizards Stay Up Late was one of the early books about the birth of the internet that was really helpful. And then things like The Cuckoo's Egg and Kevin Mitnick's book and other mm -hmm. classics like uh, Firewalls Internet Security by Steve Belovin and others. So just, you know, doing my best to kind of figure out how all this came together. You said Kevin Mitnick. I said, boy, there's a name I haven't heard for a while. Boy, <laughs> yes. brought, back, brought back some memories. Yes. So did, did Network Magazine, was that uh, UBM, United Business Media? Um, because that's how I first came to know you, was dealing with various UBM properties, as I said at the top of the show, Network World and Information Week and so on. Yeah, that's it was. Uh, they had a whole bunch of stables. They had a stable of magazines, and Network Magazine was one of them. And actually, at that time, we also published Network Computing, and so people always confused us with Network Computing, which was frustrating. But uh, I did also end up eventually working for and being the editor-in-chief of Network Computing, so it all came around. Ah, okay. Well, and that ties to Interop as well, because Interop come, came under the UBM umbrella somehow or other. That's right. There was an acquisition. And so the publishing company bought the events company, or maybe it was the other way around. I don't remember. But um, in any case, I started uh, after network computing. I got a job with Interop where I was director of content. Uh, and it was actually through network computing that I started to know you and Greg because you yeah. guys um, I you guys wrote for the, the publication for network computing. Uh, and then once I moved over to Interop, obviously you guys were well known. So we were like, hey, let's get the packet pushers to come and speak at Interop. And so that sort of deepened our relationship. Going back to network computing for a second, when I had opportunities to write for network computing, I loved it if you were going to be the editor. There were certain <laughs> opportunities I turned down at some other publications because the editors were so heavy-handed. I'd read what I got back from them. It was like, I don't even think I wrote this anymore. Who? What is this disembodied voice of words in front of me? Because the editors were just so... Oh, heavy-handed is the best thing I can say. But uh, but you, Drew, man, when you edited something, it was light and always made it better, but it still sounded like me when it was done, and I really appreciated that. Thank you. I appreciate that. That was always my goal, is to let the, editor, the author have their own voice. Yeah. Now, you've edited a, a lot of technical writers. You're a prolific technical writer yourself. So let, let's get into the meat of the show here. You, these days, you podcast to nerdy folks in a deeply technical industry. And I want to take advantage of how you've learned to, to communicate with various folks. Um, I, and I want the engineers in the audience, that's, that's most of our audience, I want to help them understand how to communicate with less technical people about complex topics that are fraught with nuance and, you know, the people behind them are, you know, these deeply nerdy people who love all of that stuff and, and have a tendency to maybe over communicate sometimes or not clearly communicate with people the things that they actually need to know about that technical topic. So, 
So let's let's have a conversation with your recommendations. How should these people communicate? Uh, what? How can they improve their communications? The first thing I'll say, and probably the most obvious, is know your audience. Um, if you're writing a blog that you're expecting other engineers to consume, then you know, go nuts, get in the weeds, get nerdy, uh, use all the acronyms, use all the terminology, go for it, because you're writing for your peers and presumably they have a, about the same level of knowledge you have, and if not, they can look stuff up. But if that's not who you're writing for, then you need to kind of like step out of your own mindset and sort of think about who you're addressing and what it is thereafter. Um, for me, when I'm trying to communicate something, my goal is to try to break it down to its most, I guess, elemental components, because in coming up, not having a computer science or engineering or IT background, I finally figured out after talking and talking and talking and reading to people that there's only so many ways you're going to move a chunk of data from A to B, and each way has mm -hmm. benefits and each way has trade-offs. And so when I'm trying to present the most clear information possible, I want to tell you, here's how the information is getting from A to B, and here are the benefits and trade-offs. And when you, I guess for me, it's helpful to step back and boil it down to that most basic essence. One thing you didn't say is uh, you didn't use words like dumb it down or remember how ignorant <laughs> your audience is. It was more put yourself in their mindset, which I think I think of myself as a younger engineer, Drew. It's like, these people don't have a clue. How do I get them a clue? And there was almost a you know a disrespect there that I had to learn uh, maturing in my career to, to, to do away with. No, people don't have the same background that I do in engineering, and I don't have the background that they do in whatever they're an expert at. So there needs to be, don't, you can't talk to them like they're stupid. They're not. You got to right. treat them with the respect that they're due, but also phrase things in a way that hits them where they're at. Yeah, the goal is definitely to be simple and be direct, but not condescending, because if you come at folks... Uh, in that mindset, like you're an idiot and I need to school you, then you're going to turn them off regardless of how good you know you are at communicating with them if you have that attitude, I think. Oh, condescending is the perfect word. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. There's, there's a part of me that's blushing red just remembering me in my 20s as opposed to me pushing 50 now. Just some of the meetings I was in and the way I said things, like, boy, I wish I could take that back. <laughs> and, and I know this because uh, I'd get pulled into an office and go, yeah, you could have done better with that. So here's <laughs> my, my boss be like, Dude, but I rubbed really their nose in their ignorance. <laughs> I rubbed it as hard as I could. Didn't I do good? <laughs> my boss would be like, man, you're good at what you do, but you gotta, you gotta communicate more uh, effectively. You can't, you can't do that. You know, I, I, that, that's a thing that came up to me more than once as a, as a young engineer, you can't do that or you can't say it that way or, or something along those lines. So. And I, th I think one way to do that is to, you know, we in the industry rely so much on jargon because it's a shortcut. It's a way to get to the information we need. You have to, again, step back and think about, okay, BGP isn't going to mean much to them. So how can I explain this in a different way? Um, that, again, that stepping back and putting themselves, putting yourself in their mindset of what don't they know? And it's going to be a lot, but again, get back to mm -hmm. that. What is the essence? How am I getting A to B? What are the benefits and trade-offs? I guess my general recommendation is think about outcomes. What kind of outcome are you trying to achieve? Is it to help them make a decision? Then they need to know the plus and minuses. It's a, you know, that kind of thing. So is it possible then to, um, to in a desire for someone to make a good decision, and probably as an engineer, you have an opinion on what that good decision is. Is it still possible to over-communicate? How do you mean over-communicate? 
Well, it, this is something actually I still struggle with when communicating technical topics because of all the nuance that's involved and the amount of detail that can be evolved <laughs> in something. There's some stuff that you got to decide. Am I just skipping this because it's too much information for this topic or do I really need to include this because someone needs to understand this so that they can make a valid decision? Mm, yeah, that's, I guess that's a judgment call, but I I think at a high level, most of the time, skip it. Uh, if you're starting to get into the weeds on, I don't know, uh, VXLAN uh, versus some kind of other fabric and just imagine your uh, audience's eye starting to glaze over. Yeah, step back, step back. There, there, there are things, you know what, there's footnotes and there's endnotes. And you can say, if you need more information, here's a link, here's a podcast, whatever. Uh, and, and come see me and we'll talk about it if it's relevant to you. But yeah, you don't have to bludgeon them with every single detail. I know nuance is tough because there are, uh, particularly around security issues, compliance issues and so on, where you might want to be like, no, I need to explain this to you. But yeah, sometimes you just have to back off. Said something interesting there. Their their eyes starting to glaze over, which is a cliche. We all use that a lot to 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 indicate that someone's just not keeping up anymore, and they're like, "I can't hear any words you're saying." Okay, that uh, also implies you're standing in front of someone communicating. But then there's also written communication, where it's an email or it's a report. Do you think about communication differently depending on the medium? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Um, I'm most comfortable written because that's what I grew up doing and what I like doing. Um, and I guess that's sort of how my advice is, is being couched for this article. But yeah, speaking is entirely different. And that's probably something you can talk about as well because you've done like big presentations at Interop. Um, that is, I mean, there you're having to boil it down even more. Uh, and if you're using slides, then your slides should be simple, direct, mostly visual, not a lot of writing, that kind of stuff. Not a lot of writing, but how many presentations have we seen where it's a text wall up there? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 A big principle I've learned on that one, Drew, was um, someone made a point that really stuck with me. They can read the words on the slide or they can listen to you talk, but they can't do both. So if you want them to listen to you talk, you need to keep, as you just said, a simple slide that is supporting what you're saying, but not distracting them. That's right. Exactly. Or if you're reading the slide to them, that's also going to be a turnoff. Uh, so, you know, have your image, your visual, your one point, and then be able to talk around it. I think one of the best presentations I ever saw did happen at Interop. It was one of our keynotes and it was a guy who came up and I, I remember seeing his deck beforehand and it was like 200 slides. And I was like, oh God, this is going to be horrible. But each slide was up there for about two seconds and it was one word and it just sort of keyed him up to give the context around what he was talking about. And so it kept moving and was very quick and he was very verbally dexterous. So it's one of those things that, that takes practice. If you're going to speak, um, that's where you want to practice over and over, even maybe get up in front of somebody and try it. Mm, for sure. I, but the, the, you also said to, uh, people reading off of their slides. I've seen that happen so many times because people get <laughs> nervous up there and so they want to lead into their slides. But that point you just made about practice, that's how you overcome some of that nervousness. You know your material really well because you've been through it so many times. Right. And on the writing side, one thing I'll say is that don't assume everyone's going to read to the end. So if you've got something really important and key, you have to get that up front um, because you can't assume that everybody's going to get to the bottom with you. So Whatever the most important thing is you need to say, put that at the very top and start there. It's not like a book where you need a big reveal at the end. Uh, you want to put all the good material toward the top. If you And if you don't do that, I think the, the, the term would be burying the lead. Yes, burying the lead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's editing I remember you've done for me where I had done exactly that. You, 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 I was building my case, building the case, building the case, and then, you know, paragraphs, 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 and then at the bottom was like, the big conclusion, now that I've built my case, boom, here's my conclusion. And you were like, yeah, this goes at the top. You buried the lead. I, and I still remember that. And that's actually a common advice that folks give is after your first draft, take what you've put at the bottom and put that right at the top. That's where you should start because you finally sort of figured out what it is you're trying to say. Hmm. You mean, Drew, when you write, you don't automatically know what you're going to say? <laughs> no, <laughs> not always. Yes, writing is a process. I mean, that, and if you think you know something, try to write it down to explain it to someone else and you'll find out where the gaps in your knowledge are. Uh, it's a really useful exercise for even just your own uh, interior knowledge, figuring out what you know and, and can you explain it to someone in a simple and reasonable way. I want to go back to that idea of having someone else review your content. Um, wh what does that process look like in your mind if it's a valuable process? When you're writing for an audience, you know, you sort of, you know what you know, you have your own background knowledge, uh, and, you know, you're trying to arrange your words and sentences in ways that make sense, but you don't quite know how they're going to land until you let somebody else take a look at it. So that's why having somebody else read it gives you that feedback where you can, they can say, not quite clear here, or were you trying to be funny here, or what is this about? That uh, having a, a second reader really lets you see where your message falls apart and where you might need to do more work. The other thing it does mm -hmm. is put some space between you and the work so that the next time you see it again, you're like, oh, yeah, I didn't really mean it that way, or I could have phrased this better, or maybe I need to move this part around so it makes more sense and gives you more flow. So one, having other eyes on it lets you find out, did I really effectively communicate what I need to communicate. And two, it creates space for you to step away from the document and then come back to it with fresh eyes. <laughs> but you need that person to be willing to be critical, not just be, oh, you did such a great job, because that's not actually helpful. <laughs> not all, Yeah. You know what? Finding good people to give you feedback is tough because most people have been sort of socially trained to be encouraging and polite. Uh, and so they won't really tell you what they think. Um, and on the other hand, you don't want people to just sort of rip you a new one because that doesn't feel good either. So find, <laughs> find, if you find someone who does give good feedback, treasure them and hold on to them because they are gold. I, I was laughing when you said early on, um, as one of the criticisms come through, were you trying to be funny here? I, I was. Was it not funny? <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. Feedback can make you very sad. So. <laughs> we pause the podcast discussion today so that I can train you. Yeah, no, I'm I'm actually not going to train you right now. What I am going to do is talk about heavy networking sponsor CBT Nuggets, and they will train you. I care a lot about IT training because it's been a big part of my IT career since I began. All the way back in 1995, I started my IT infrastructure journey learning Novell stuff. And over the years, training has never stopped for me. Sometimes I'm going for a cert, and sometimes I just need to get a better handle on something new. But I'm always learning something to deliver the best networks I can. As you research your own training needs, consider CBT Nuggets. CBT Nuggets specializes in training for networking, cloud, and security. They cover other material too, but they have an especially huge library of training material for Cisco, AWS, Juniper, Linux, Microsoft, and VMware. Thousands of videos, thousands of hours of content, and that's not meant to scare you. It's okay. You don't have to watch them all at once. Just know that what you need is there when you need it. 
So for example, let's say you're getting into network automation now. CBT Nuggets offers Cisco DevNet Associate and DevNet Professional Training. I've been reviewing the DevNet Blueprint material from Cisco, and I can tell you, you're going to want training to get through these programs and make the most of them because DevNet material, it isn't like learning a new routing protocol. It's learning how to manage infrastructure as code. And unless you used to be a dev, you don't know what you're doing. Maybe maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one that needs to get stuck into the CBT Nuggets training for DevNet stuff. Anyway, there is so much more there than DevNet training. I've spent some time with the CBT Nuggets interface and it's easy to navigate. On the videos I sampled, the audio and video quality have been excellent and the instructors were easy to understand and they were personal and engaging. They were not formal and boring. And there might've even been a cowboy hat involved. Actually, yeah, there was definitely a cowboy hat. Besides the training itself, there is a great support system to help you get a handle on the material. They got virtual labs that are there. They got accountability coaching there. And I I need to shut up now and get to the part that you care about the most, the special offer, free stuff you get from CBT Nuggets because you listened to this entire spot, you awesome human. First, visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. There, you will find that CBT Nuggets is running a free learner offer. They've made portions of their most popular courses free. All you got to do, sign up with your Google account, start training. That's it. This is a great way for you to give CBT Nuggets a try. Now, as a bonus, everyone who signs up as a free learner is going to automatically be entered into a drawing to win a six-month premium subscription to CBT Nuggets. So just just go do it. cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. This is a no-brainer. And now back to the podcast that I so rudely interrupted. So, Drew, one of the communications challenges is if if you you know what you know, but if you don't consider the reader enough, you can kind of blow by them uh, with you know, writing down what, from a standpoint of what you know, you didn't give them enough context that they can keep up with you, and uh, and having that other set of eyes can help you pull those things out. Yeah, this is where we get back into that conversation around nuance, like how deep do I need to go on a topic to make sure they understand uh, versus not wanting to bore them to death or pepper them with information that to them may feel irrelevant. Uh, So again, having that second reader to say, to help you sort of balance out, am I getting the right points here? Do you understand what I'm talking about to enough detail without me killing you? Again, that, that, that's why the, having that uh, other set of eyes can be so valuable. Or even, again, taking time away and coming back to it yourself. But it is a balancing act because you can't start every document on networking with, okay, this is a packet. Let's talk about packets. I mean, you right. gotta, there is some, I don't know. Again, it, it, it can be difficult to know where to draw the line. I mean, you should assume that your audience knows what the internet is at the very least. Uh, so you can, <laughs> I remember... I, I, Constantly at network computing when um, a new freelancer or somebody would come in and they would essentially start their article with the history of the internet. And I'm like, all right, we'll just cut that part out. And now let's talk about this new switch because we got it. <laughs> that's uh, I think that's an easy mistake to make to, to, to over you know, intro a topic. And I've read plenty of articles like that. Actually, it's, it's four or five paragraphs of, kind of unrelated introduction to the actual meat of the topic, which is frustrating, especially if the title of the article was this shiny new switch and it's five paragraphs of, you know, let's start with the internet. And then you finally get to the switch after, you know, 750 words. Yeah. So this is where drafts are so important. Why you don't just want to write something and then be done with it take time away, come back to it. Because oftentimes the reason 
people start with the history of the internet is because they themselves, when they're trying to figure out what to do, feel like, okay, just for my own sake, I need to start at the very beginning, which is, you know, when God created that first packet and it went over a wire <laughs> uh, to some lab in California. And that sort of like helps them just get into the process. And if you need that, that's fine. Do that. But just don't foist it on your reader, right? Come back and cut that part out because you've already done it. And again, start your article where you started in the middle when you're actually getting to what you need to talk about. So like, it's sort of like stretching or warm up. If you need to jog around the pitch a couple of times before you play a game, that's sort of what this writing does where you're putting in stuff that you may not use later. And that's fine. Be willing to cut it because it's just sort of helping you warm up and get mentally ready to talk about what you're going to do. Well, you're saying something really important here about uh, writing in, in particular. It is a process. It doesn't come out fully formed from your fingertips into the keyboard the first time out. You write words and then there's a lot of editing and tweaking involved. Yeah, editing and drafting are so important, uh, particularly if you're going to do it for public consumption. You want to make sure you, uh, as I said, take some time and come back to it, uh, warm up, write what you need, but be af don't be afraid to cut and cut mercilessly because m that you're going to come out with a better document in the end. Yeah, so when you are writing for an audience, be prepared to build in some edit time that you may not have anticipated um, if, you have, if you've done it before. Yeah, that process is um, is so critical to to have one, and not everybody's process is the same. Drew, uh, you know, for example, I tend to start with an outline these days, mm -hmm. and it's not not very complex, but it'll be the big idea I want to communicate, the supporting points that I'm going to use to support that big idea, and you know, that that's enough. That'll uh, get me going, and then if I can get through that first first sentence, first paragraph, I can get past that hurdle. I'm good. I can keep writing. Do you have a process like that, or? Yeah, somewhat. I generally um, have points that I know that I want to make, and I'll sort of scribble notes under each of them and help me structure out the document. I know Greg writes this way, too. He's a big fan of writing via header, where he's got like four or five headers, and then he sort of fills in the gaps underneath. Um, but whatever your process is, as long as you have a process and it works for you, I think the other thing to remember is that, like anything else, writing is a skill, and the more you do it, the better you get at it. Um, so the first time you write something, it's going to feel awful and probably be not that great, but don't let that stop you. It is practice, essentially. Hmm. Well, now I want to lean into your uh, deep experience as an editor. Um, you, you, even more, you've seen a lot of people make mistakes. You've mentioned like that document where, uh, let's talk about the history of the internet before we review the switch. Yes. What other big mistakes or common mistakes do you see people make? Um, one big one, uh, this goes back to my editing days, is uh, turning verbs into nouns. Um, this is a way I think people, one, have of making themselves sound important, um, and also <laughs> padding out a document. <laughs> um, but it just kind of slows down the pace of the document or the, the writing because you're losing the power of the verb by making it into a, a concrete noun. So give us an example of that. Can you think of one? So... The performance of the switch was unsatisfactory, where you could say, the switch performed unsatisfactorily. So I've made a shorter sentence, and I've given it more vigor. Mm. Because I took performed the performance, which is a noun, and turned it into its verb, which it should be, performed. Right. So uh, that's something that I find in everybody's writing, including my own, when I'm editing my own stuff. It's, it's just, I, I think, you know, 
coming up through high school, we're taught to sort of like have this tone and this sound that's supposed to be somewhat quasi-academic or whatever to satisfy your English teacher. And it just, it doesn't, (laughs) and so that's what people do is they, they sort of sludge it up when what you want is quick, light, precise. Uh, And so that means use verbs as much as possible. And if you see yourself turning nouns, uh, verbs into nouns, stop. So, so talk to me about tone then in, in modern writing, whether you're blogging or writing an email or building a report internally. Are you okay with a, a less formal, more personal vibe when you write? Again, it depends on your audience. If you're presenting to uh, a bunch of executives, you're probably not going to be as casual as you would in a blog or a note to a friend. Um, but in general, uh, a light tone can also be sort of a quick and consumable tone. So I'm definitely on the side of informality with the caveat that you have to know your bounds and, and your audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I love to write informally. I try to write like I talk to a point because there is a limit to that. You can't, yeah, there there is a limit to that where it becomes impractical or just doesn't seem like you can be taken seriously if you're too informal. But at the same time, that personal tone is, um, I think, engaging. I like to read people who write that way. Absolutely. Yeah. I, again, going back to the way we were all trained to write, we were sort of told to have this sort of very formal tone. And that was fine for an English essay about the scarlet letter. But uh, when you're trying to communicate with your sales team about some complex topic, you want to be as light and crisp and precise as possible. And I feel like if you start with a lighter tone, you'll maybe get more in the right headspace to be a better writer as well. All right. So you warned us about, uh, we've talked about not bearing the lead. You've taught, we've talked about not turning verbs into nouns here. Is there, uh, other common mistakes you see made? Yeah. Again, this is another tone issue. It's trying to pile on words to make something sound important or official or weighty. Um, again, if you feel like you're coming up in front of a bunch of people and you've got this document and you're trying to get them to go a certain way, make a certain decision, buy a certain product, you may want to kind of lard up the document with officious sounding words and sort of formalize language to make it seem like this is the the step we must take. Um, but again, that also causes people's eyes to glaze over and them to tune out and to not care. If you are, again, light, precise, and accurate with strong verbs, that's always going to serve you better than being wordy and officious and uh, formal. Okay, wordy. You just, uh, <laughs> th- this is where when you edit my stuff, I'm like, yeah, I was really wordy there. He fixed that. Everybody is. Don't don't feel bad. Me too. I do it well, myself. It's, it's, it's so easy to fall into that trap, especially if it's the first time you're getting an idea out the door. So actually, because you edit me uh, somewhat often, I've learned to reanalyze a sentence or a paragraph and go, is there a way I could restate that more crisply, shorter, more tersely, and still get the idea across clearly? And a lot of times I can. Um, It's like, man, I said that in four sentences and actually one would have done. But it's harder to write that way. It's harder to get it concise. It's easier to be verbose. At least it is for me. I don't remember who said it, but there's this famous passage from a letter from a famous writer to a friend who said, I apologize for the length of this letter. I didn't have time to make it shorter, Yeah, which perfectly encapsulates that notion that, yes, it's going to take you more time and it is harder work to write something shorter because that means it's more concise, it's more precise, and it's probably easier to read. 
Well, I'm always proud of myself if I'm writing an article for a human infrastructure magazine that I know you're probably going to edit to, to some degree. If I say, I started out and it was a thousand words, but I managed to get it down to 800. I'm very, yes. very proud of myself for that reason. <laughs> I am happy too. <laughs> <laughs> and I think one of the ways I learned this approach is that, and you probably feel this too, Ethan, is that coming up as um, a reporter dealing with vendors, I always felt like their use of language was an attempt to, I don't know if bamboozle is the right word, but to obfuscate, elide, or sort of exaggerate what they were capable of. And so my job in communicating with readers was to strip away all that crap and get down to how does it work? What does it do? What are the benefits and trade-offs? And I think that approach now sort of informs how I write as well in terms of trying to get through all the the jargon and the cloudy language and all the fluff to just be... X, Y, Z. Well, you and I, in our jobs here at Packet Pushers, do tend to work with a lot of marketing folks. And that is a challenge that we have, is um, wading through the glossy, shiny version of a document that might make it to the front side of a, um, uh, the front page of a website, or in some white paper that's meant to you know, impress you and wow you with what a, what a document or what a, a product does. When in fact, what you want a document to do for, from an engineering perspective, certainly, is clearly articulate, as you said, the, the, the pros and the cons, the benefits, what does it do, what does it not do, so that you can actually weigh what the impact to your organization is going to be. But I, I actually think it's rare to find a document like that. It really is. It's a problem in our industry and probably a lot of industries where I know I can reliably skip the first three paragraphs of a press release, which is supposed to be for the media to help them cover a product, but mm. it's just going to be filled with crap. Yes. I. Well, we, we've gone back and forth in the back channel about press releases particularly, and I know I've griped about it on Twitter somewhat, where PR folks will, the, the way things are worded, a lot of buzzwords are hit, a lot yep. of shiny things are hit to make it look impressive. And I don't know if it's an SEO thing or what the point of writing in that style is, or if they're just hoping that maybe the press release gets reprinted, which some, we know some publications actually do that. They more or less reprint right. the press release as it was given to them, but it doesn't help people make valuable decisions. And these decisions, especially when we're talking about IT, are are, are valuable, are expensive, perhaps costly and business impacting. And I've never gotten the point of such obfuscation. And maybe if that's the lesson learned for us as technical writers, it's to not obfuscate the value proposition of a technology. Yeah, that's exactly right. I find for years and years, I've been frustrated with documentation and language that comes out of vendors because they are supposed to be helping customers or potential customers make a decision. But the way they write often makes it hard to do that because I have to dig so long to find out what does it actually do and how does it actually work? If Trying to get those two questions answered is sort of like the thrust of my job. From an engineering perspective, kind of coming into more the journalism side of things in recent years, I took words to mean a certain thing. So if a vendor said, <laughs> my product does this, and then they would use some sort of language, I said, oh, that means you know these things. It can do these things. Yes. But what I found was as I began digging in to, to you know, get to the bottom of it, I, that's a bad assumption. You can't assume because the language used means something to you that it means it's being used in the same way or it means the same thing. So it's something to be to be careful of, which again, going back to applying to us, I guess we got to say what we mean and make sure we're not obfuscating. 
Yeah, exactly. My favorite uh, bugbear word now is edge. It right now means everything. <laughs> everything is edge. And so when I see it, I'm like, okay, well, now we need to have a longer conversation about what that actually means. And tying that back to communicating with your audience, yeah, don't assume when you say edge, thinking what, thinking of it in your terms, they're going to take it to mean what you want it to mean. Uh, that's probably one of the issues with technical language is that it requires some precision. And so that's where folks can start getting to the weeds because they're like, okay, do I need to write a paragraph on edge then to make sure it's clear or will one sentence do? And that's again, that knowing your audience, who you're talking to and making those trade-offs of nuance versus clarity. Occasionally I will take a, a, a term that's been made to be ambiguous because it means different things to different people. I'll say for purposes of this article, this word means this. This is how I want us to think of it. Is, do you, are you okay with a strategy like that? Absolutely. Yeah, again, because you're just being very clear up front. Yep. Hmm. All right. Turning verbs into nouns. Don't bury the lead. Watch out for obfuscation or for ambiguity in, uh, in critically important words. Um, we don't want to pile on words to make something sound more important than it needs to be because, you know, we're trying to help people make decisions, not make the decision for them you know, when we're writing. But what other tips do you have for folks, Drew? Um, we sort of touched on this, but just to reiterate, I think the best tip is after you've written something, leave it for a little while, half an hour, a day, if you have the time, and come back to it with fresh eyes, and you're going to see it in an entirely different light. Just having a little bit of space away from a document or piece of writing and then coming back to it to give it another round is going to make a world of difference. I can't, uh, yeah, I mean, I just I just agree with this so much. I I... When you're deep in writing and you've got this document and this flow in your head and you've made all these connections in your brain, there's something about it at that moment where it all makes sense to you and everything's clicking. You step away for that 24-hour period and come back to it and you're like, oh, wow, no, that is not <laughs> – sometimes it's almost embarrassing where I, I look at what I've written that I really thought I kind of had it and you know I wait the gap thinking I'm going to come in and hit publish pretty much. No, and I, I'm like moving paragraphs around or deleting entire things that are just needless or I, I don't know what it is about that that gap that makes such a big difference, but it really does. Yeah, it really is amazing, and I'm exactly the same way. I'll, I'll write something and, and work on it really hard and think, okay, I've got this nailed, but it's not – I don't have to publish it until tomorrow, so I'm just going to save it. And then I come back the next day and I'm like, oh, this is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, oh, I kind of bungled the intro. I can do this better. Here's a paragraph I should move around or whatever. But I think when you're deep in a document, in your mind, you're building up context and connections that are there for you, but haven't necessarily made it onto the page or the screen and so when you step away from it and come back again, then you can see where those connections were in your head but not on the page yet. And then you can put them back in. I think we're kind of underscoring a point that you made earlier, which was edit yourself mercilessly. Can you dive into that? What does that mean when you say edit yourself uh, mercilessly? <laughs> I have found, and I don't know why this is, but if I find something that I think is super cute and clever in a piece, and it's just going to get so much reaction and I publish it and nothing happens, that I'm better off just not putting them in and just going for clarity and conciseness as opposed to trying to be, you know, tell a joke or be funny or whatever. That doesn't mean have your own voice, but there's a, there's a phrase in the writing business called kill your darlings. If there's something you think is just so precious and wonderful, it's probably not going to land. And so you might just be better off without it. The other thing is I think folks have been trained to think that longer is better. Not necessarily. 
Um, there are lots of words that you don't need in a sentence, in a paragraph, in an entire document. The more you go over it and look for places where you can get rid of like helping verbs like is and was and the gerunds ing stuff and try to just use the full tight verb without any helping on it, you're going to construct a stronger sentence. You want to be very clear about your subjects, what you're talking about, the object, what it's referring to, that kind of stuff. And just look, for, just be simple, as simple as you can. I, again, going back to high school writing training, which is where most of us got it, or college or whatever, uh, elaboration and um, extravagance was sort of what you felt like you were supposed to go for. No, simplicity. Simplicity should be the rule. And that means going through and finding words that you can cut, finding paragraphs that you can cut to make it tighter and shorter and more compact. My favorite word to delete over the last year has been very. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's a great one. Because <laughs> you almost never need it. It's right. it's there. It's one of those that you're, you're really emphasizing something and not it's pointless. If you take whatever the word very is in front of by itself, it probably means exactly what you need it to mean. You didn't have to, as you were saying, help it out with the word very. In my yeah, case, I use it exactly. to overuse it. Yeah, those sort of verbal tics come out in writing and you, you you really don't need them. Yeah. So that's what merciless editing is. It's going through and just almost being adversarially with your document. How much can I, you know, set yourself a goal. This document, I cut 50 words. Maybe the next document I can cut a hundred words. It's interesting that we say edit ourselves mercilessly in the context of cutting things. Is that almost always the case where it's removing things is what the, what the answer is when you edit yourself as opposed to adding? If you have gotten from start to finish and included all the things you needed to include, then yes, uh, generally taking stuff out is going to make the document better. There are cases where you may come across a technical point where you think, okay, I need to spend a few paragraphs fleshing this out to improve the reader's understanding. So it, you shouldn't only take away, but in general, going back and removing is going to help you, or even reorganizing. This paragraph should be above this one, or I can move my ending to my beginning and that kind of thing. But in general, yeah, uh, your edit should be about refining and making the words tighter and clearer and stronger. So let's say I'm writing some kind of a report or whatever it is, but it, and it really truly, uh, with a fair amount of efficiency, it still takes 4,000 words to write that document. Not huge, but pretty, you know, pretty sizable. That's big, yeah. How do you how do you decide when to break that up into multiple documents? Does it depend on context or? I guess it depends on how it's being delivered. If it's like a blog post, you can break that up into a series of posts and you've just saved yourself some time because now you've got a series of posts instead of having to crank out more content. And you can also link to them and so that the reader can find part two, part three, et cetera. If it's a white paper, I, I wouldn't break it up. If all of the information, those 4,000 words are sort of essential and germane to the topic, that's fine. It's okay to write long as long as all the information in there is good and necessary and relevant. But I would also think about ways to break it up. Can I get yeah. an image in there? Can I get subheads in there? Um, can I do call outs within the text to emphasize a point um, so that you're not just throwing a huge chunky block of uh, black letters at the reader and saying, dive in. <laughs> give, give them a way to navigate through it then. You're right. Exactly. Yes. Give them a way to navigate through it and tell them at the beginning of the document, all the main points that they're going to hit so they know what to expect. And if there's a particular thing they're looking for to stay with you because they know they're going to get it at the end. That's where your opening paragraphs are so crucial. You should be able to tell the reader what they're going to know and why they need to know it at the very beginning. Mm. 
Well, one more question, Drew. Perhaps this is the most important question of our discussion. The word internet, capital I or lowercase i? (laughs) (laughs) I think that the trend now is to lowercase it, but I'm sticking with uppercase because it's just that important. I've been trying to shift my, because apparently it's official now that you're supposed to say lowercase i uh, internet. And there was, uh, it's actually a discussion on Twitter about this. If you read the official style manuals, that happened, I don't know, it's 2021 now. It happened a few years back, I guess. I, I'm still not used to it, but um, but I've been trying to shift that way so that my brain sees lowercase i as normal and not an error. And I'm not there yet. I don't know. Yeah. And honestly, if you wrote something and I was editing it, I would probably uppercase the I. So it's, <laughs> I don't know why it just looks right to me. And maybe it's because I've been doing it for so long that it's going to be hard for me to change. And I guess I'll get around to it. But the internal packet pusher style guide says uppercase I. Well, you are a packet pusher, Drew. And so people are familiar with you. They've heard your voice a lot. But uh, still, would you let people know how they can find you on the internet? If you've got a, a book or a blog or other things you'd like to promote, anything like that, that maybe you don't normally do in your regular duties here on the network? Yeah, you can find me on the internet, uppercase I, uh, on Twitter at Drew underscore CM. And I'm blogging regularly at packetpushers.net and sometimes in human infrastructure. Excellent. And, uh, well, I mean, you all know me too. I'm Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter. You can find this in many more of our fine, free technical podcasts, along with our community blog. Community blog. That Did you catch that? That means people <laughs> from the community, not just people who are, you know, full-time packet pushers humans. They're writing at packetpushers.net. And that could be you. Maybe you, uh, you got that article you'd like to get out and express your thoughts on how to do a thing or some new technology you've been working with, et cetera. Yeah, we'll set you up as an author on packetpushers.net. In fact, you can ping Drew and he'll get you going on that. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we are at Packet Pushers. You can find us on LinkedIn as well. And uh, last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.